0: Sorry, you should have um, raised your hand and uh, told me that you couldn't hear properly. I, I had no idea. Uh, I was blithely unaware of your uh, difficulties. I'm sorry. Sorry. Okay, well, we'll try to um, <coughs> move things into a slightly, well, higher... No. Um, first of all, before we move on. I covered a lot of ground in that first uh, 45 minutes. Um, are there any questions that relate to um, the, the clarity of what I'm trying to say? Um, is there anything that is quite puzzling to you or something that you'd like to get off your chest right now? You just disagree with me and you would feel much better with the cathartic effect of telling me. <laughs> Any questions you want to raise with me at this point? Yeah. Are you going to make the case that technology is a moral ethical issue? Or are you just going to assume that it is and, and talk about it? Okay. Um, that sounds like an invitation. <laughs> um, Okay, am I going to assume that technology is a moral, ethical issue, uh, or or am I going to argue it, or just assume it? Um, I I pointed at the uh, direction that I'm I'm going. On the one hand, I said it's an activity. If we think of technology as an activity, something that humans do, then it's as amenable to ethical... Uh, scrutiny and uh, moral debate as any other area. So there's one starting point. Another is saying that I think we can uh, uh, read any device or system that we use and uh, read from it the purposes and priorities that are built into it, political, cultural, social priorities built into it, thereby also initiating a kind of uh, culture critique along ethical um, and spiritual grounds. So there are two starting points that I already um, uh, have alluded to. And, uh, well, let, let's see how we go, go along. Keep the uh, question in mind. And if we are in severe danger of failure at uh, 10 to 4, then let me know and we'll try to rescue things just before the uh, day is over. Any other um, questions of clarity about where we're going? Yeah. Is that the idea we have that we are in this way? The question is, do we, uh, are we vulnerable to technological idolatry? The answer is yes, but it's one of the ways in which I'm wanting us to think about technology. I also put it in the context of creativity and the uh, unfolding and opening up of God's creation within a divinely given creativity. So I'm not wanting to start with idolatry. T- idolatry is crucial, and we would do far, we could do far worse than get a good hold on the notion of technological idolatry for thinking about the world today, but it's not the only hermeneutic key. Um, I sometimes think that in the work of Jacques Ellul, there's a tendency to uh, towards seeing the idolatrous as the key theme, and uh, you know, in a in a rebellious world, it's really important that we get hold of that. But I don't want us to think only of that. I want us to think about creativity and joy and spirituality, yes, in technology, as well as the idolatry. So I don't want to come over as the, uh, you know, the jacquilol the or, um, yeah, just the techno- technological idolatry uh kind of profit mode, which is what Elul does. Um, but I do think it's tremendously important. And I don't think we think about it enough. I don't think we uh, look at the anatomy of um, idolatry, like in those passages from the Psalms and Isaiah. I don't think we think about that enough, because I, I think it's intended for us. So I do think it's tremendously important, but I don't want us to think it's the only way uh, of considering these things. Yeah? Yes. Um, Do I believe that uh, God can use technology to God's glory? Uh, By all means. And um, again, I tried to uh, argue that already. Um, Phrases like that, however, can be used to start with an assumption that the system or device is, as it were, just a means. And I don't want us to think in that way either, uh, because I don't think it's a biblical way of thinking about it. I don't think we can ever consider uh, technological devices as somehow neutral. Um, they, they may be good in some respects, they may be bad in some respects, but they're not neutral. They are in God's world, and there's nothing that is neutral in God's world. So they can't just be lifted out of some context and used as if they didn't already have meanings and purposes built into them. So whatever it is that we want to see as bringing glory to God, we have to ask, well, what are the cultural uh, purposes already invested in this? What are the political implications of using this? What are the meanings that are already... Inhering in this. So it's a good question, but I I think it demands a rather more complex answer than uh, to start with the assumption that it's just a means or just a tool. Um, I think as uh, Christian believers, we need to be more uh, subtle and uh, uh, nuanced in our biblical thinking than that. Okay, well, let's let's move on. Well, yeah, sure, there's another question. Is there any place in the church's history where we have recorded uh, them grappling with the technology of their time uh, and other reflections? A really good question. Is there a period in uh, church history that we can look to as, uh, are you meaning exemplary? So we can say, well, here they they really grappled with this question and came up with some good answers. Um, two responses to the question. One, although my PhD was in history, I sure wasn't looking at that question, and um, I don't, I can't think of an answer off the top of my head. One of you in uh, history or with an historical imagination might be able to uh, think of what that might be. However, the other response would be the situation that we are in today is historically unique. In the 21st century, we are radically and unavoidably dependent on abstract technical systems and in our daily use of devices in ways that has never, ever been true in human history before. So even if there was, it might give us some great uh, models for how to do such a debate Christianly, but it wouldn't refer us to a world in which, well, the world that I described to you very first thing this morning, in which we cannot live without. We have got ourselves in a position, Wendell Berry notwithstanding, in which we cannot live without these things. He may not use a computer to do his writing. Fine. Um, there's a colleague in history at York University in Toronto, David Noble, and he, despite his university's policy, still refuses to use email. Well, good for him. But how he manages, I have no idea. I, I don't get it. But but he's still holding out against it. So, And I really think that the Wendell Berries and David Nobles of this world are providing us with great models for saying no and to show that it is possible to say no. For most of us, most of the time, it would be a huge struggle to uh, disentangle ourselves from the world. Therefore, I think of what we're doing as trying to think of ways in which we can live Christianly with technologies. That I see as a, uh, a goal, not because... I'm a defeatist and I can't find, find, can't find it in me to join David Noble and Wendell Berry, but because I think there is sufficient ambiguity and muddiness in a world of rebellion against God and yet in which we are part of the image of God reflecting those good uh, creative and uh, active responsibility aspects of uh, who we are to make me think that there is a, a radical ambiguity about this stuff that is not always clear in um, uh, in the writings of those who are, you know, who, who hold up, who, who whistleblow and who hold up their hands and say, no more, no further, uh, this isn't for me, and so on. Okay, hope that helps. Uh, okay, so we're going to look at some um, devices. And um, really what I want to do is just raise some questions about the devices that we use, and from what I was saying earlier, see if you can uh, connect the dots a little bit, and uh, see the connections between what I was saying and these devices. Because I'm not going to do the work for you. I'm going to do some description, a little bit of uh, hermeneutic uh, interpretation of our devices, but I'm not going to do the work for you. I regard this as something that we all need to work on. Um, and if you if you want to ask the question, you haven't, why aren't you talking about televisions, then um, I'll give you two answers. Um, one is that there are, uh, there's a number of really good uh, pieces of writing by Christians on television. It's a sort of, key artifact in the post-Second World War world that Christians have mercifully recognized as having uh, invited Christian critique and uh, questioning. Um, I'm not saying anything about them for, for that reason. There's other writing out there. Also, um, many, many years ago, Sue and I and our children, actually, made a decision about TV. And frankly, I don't know enough about it from personal experience. Uh, We haven't had a TV for uh, a very long time. So it's a world I know nothing about. I learn it from, you know, newspapers and internet and so on, but I don't know TV like uh, maybe some of you do. Um, and uh, I've written lots and lots about uh, computers, especially in relation to uh, everyday surveillance. And uh, if you really want to, you can read some of that uh, stuff. I don't regard there uh, to be any kind of uh, disjuncture between what I used to write for Christian publishers once upon a time and what I write exclusively for regular uh, academic publishers today. I, I regard the two as, uh, I hope, seamless. I've never stopped trying to write as a Christian. It's just that I gave up writing for Christian publishers. And so if you want to read that stuff, then um, you're more than welcome to do so. But I'm not saying much about computers today either. Let's start with uh, motor cars. Uh, love them or hate them, most of us have to live with them. <laughs> we may not drive one or own one, but we still have to live with them. We can't cross the street without looking out for them. Um, <coughs> iPods may not be used by uh, seniors, but uh, they will be used by those who download MP3s and uh, who wear earbuds. But once upon a time, motor cars were like iPods. They were new and unusual. Um, and then, very rapidly, like iPods, became highly popular. In the first place, they were an elite technology. Of course, those who had the first iPods thought they were part of an elite as well. Only the rich could afford them in the 19th century. Uh, although by the 1940s, um, some people cars, people's cars, had become widely used. Model T Ford from uh, 1908, the uh, Volkswagen from uh, 1938 produced in rather more uh, somber uh, circumstances, but nonetheless Volkswagen is what it was supposed to be. It was the people's car for the uh, national socialism of uh, pre-war Germany. And the Citroen, 2CV or the uh, what's it also called? Der Neil moustique um, there are many other nicknames that um, uh, 2 CVs have. Very nearly bought one of those things once. The earliest cars had people carrying red flags walking in front of them to warn pedestrians and others of their coming. Uh, and in 1903, in the United Kingdom, license plates were introduced with identifiable numbers to help police deal with those causing accidents through furious driving. You drive furiously when you've got somebody in front of you with a red flag. I don't know, but anyway. Um, Equally, the earliest cars were also raced to see which could be made to go the fastest. And I think that is also significant. The 21st century is marked not by speed alone, but by acceleration. And I think that the motif of acceleration is one that we really need to explore in a Christian context. But speed is is very, very important. Of course, speed becomes important in the 19th century. Uh, New forms of transportation coming into being, and um, speed becomes important. And of course, it's celebrated. Think of, uh, well, I I love to uh, try to paint in watercolor. And uh, one British watercolorist, Turner, uh, used to celebrate speed in his paintings. For example, a picture of the uh, railway locomotive crossing a bridge in a storm. Uh, What's it called? Speed, steam, and something else. I don't know if you know that image, but it's a marvelous image of a, a speeding locomotive. But it's celebratory speed is something that uh, we need to think about. So the earliest cars were also raced to see which could go fastest. What do we know about car culture? It's hard to think of a technology that's had as much impact as the car has had in the 20th century. Apart from anything else, more than a billion cars were produced in the 20th century. Uh, and... Right now, there are more than 700 million in use around the world. In the earlier part of uh, last century, the Model T that I mentioned enabled farmers to do many other things apart from travel. Uh, great machines, they winched and hauled, for example. I don't know if you've seen old footage of uh, Model Ts that are... Uh, wedged in position and being used as winches. There were all kinds of things they used those machines for. They weren't just for getting from A to B. As roads were gradually covered in uh, asphalt, people could uh, move around town more readily and then from place to place. Cars were mass produced from the start of last century um, and also encouraged the growth of their dependent technologies and systems, such as filling stations, battery stores, and, of course, increasingly the global movement of oil. Over time, cars came to dominate many aspects of life, from city design to shopping habits. New homes are built with uh, the garage door as the physically front door of the dwelling. And supermarkets are designed for cars, not for people on foot or bicycles. And the term automobile has always carried a certain ambiguity with it. Although it was meant to refer to the horseless carriage, auto meaning in this case self-propelling, it was also an independent self-steering vehicle that needed no tracks on which to run. In other words, it speaks to human autonomy to go wherever one wants independently together or solo. The way that cars are used in most con- most countries has ideological linkages with the most deep modern commitments to individualism and the liberty to make choices that suit us first. The automobile speaks of dreams of freedom and now the capacity to cover almost every terrain on the planet. You need no permission. This was one of the things uh, in the... Heralded about the car in the 20th century. You need no permission to go there. Uh, and according to some enthusiasts who uh, spoke before uh, global positioning satellites, you could also be free from the surveilling eye when you were out in your automobile. No longer, of course, but it's once the case. It suggests that the automobile allows people to break out of their erstwhile confinement and restriction by timetables, railway timetables, for example, not of their making, into unlimited vistas of self-directed travel and enjoyment. You see, I'm beginning to read the car. This is what I'm meaning. We need to develop a hermeneutic for reading the things that we use. The reality, of of course, is a bit different. The car, as I already hinted, is part of a massive system that in the 20th century shifted transportation from the public to the private. Homes and workplaces, residential and industrial areas, retail outlets, and city centers can all be separated using cars. On the 4th of June, um, Sue and I are going to welcome a new person into our family. Uh Chris is marrying Abby, one of our daughters. And uh he's a city planner. And uh whoa, we're all our conversations are now dominated by uh, what happens in cities and how, how things are planned. And it's great. I'm I'm loving our conversations. Uh it really makes you think about um, how these zones are so much determined by cars. Um, and the ownership of cars, and the belief that, well, driving a car is a sort of right, if not mobility, as a basic desire, right, and joy. Timetables are personalized around traffic flows and school and work routines. Well, of course, they have to be. London rush hour traffic moves at seven miles per hour. In Tokyo, rush hour traffic moves at 12 miles per hour, and in Paris, 17 miles per hour. In 1900, you could cross downtown L.A. with a horse and buggy almost as fast as you can in your automobile today. Uh Things have really improved a lot. (laughs) Highway traffic may be slowed for hours by what begins as split second slowdowns by rubberneckers, glancing at accidents. And life in general is affected by the congestion, pollution, death and injuries, environmental degradation caused by cars. The World Health Organization suggests that in the next 20 years, road traffic accidents will become the third largest global cause of disease and injury because, uh, and because these are nearly all preventable and predictable, and far worse in poorer countries, they say that it should be a central public health issue. And of course, cars haven't affected everyone equally. Take the case of women and men. Because in all countries, women tend to be poorer than men. They also tend to be left stranded more often. More men than women have licenses and own cars. North American studies show that although women may uh, <coughs> women's transport needs increase as uh, they enter the paid labour force, um, sorry, I'll start that again. North American studies show that though women may live in car owning households, they uh, don't necessarily have access to the family car. Women tend to be more reliant on public transport than men especially in poorer areas. Women's transport needs increase as they enter the paid labor force, and as health, education, and shopping facilities are more and more dispersed. The advent of cars encouraged the practice of women doing the shopping, rather than having goods delivered or using corner stores. Now, of course, we don't even remember the days when shopping was more a matter that involved deliveries to the home. We're talking 19th century, and none of us have memories that far back. But it's the car that has helped to transform the situation where things were once delivered to the home, where now we have to do the labor of going and getting them. We, usually being women. So, there's a division here that is not uninteresting. Uh, And if we look at public transport, that also has some very interesting gender divisions as well that don't benefit women, by and large. There are also global divisions that we could talk about in relation to the motor car. Our use of our little Honda is not innocent and isolated. It is part of not just what else goes on on our street, in our city, in our neighborhood, but throughout the world. One thing about the global division. We have reached a crucial juncture. The end of the era of oil is beginning. We've reached the top of the peak, and the bell curve is now heading down on the other side. The oil era is over. Historians will look back on the era of oil. I hate to think what they'll say, but they'll look back on it because it will be a thing of the past. And what will they notice about um, car ownership worldwide? They will notice that developing countries or countries that are very rapidly industrializing, China and India to take the two most obvious examples, also had great aspirations to be part of the age of oil and to join North Americans and Europeans in their car use. It isn't going to be possible, and it isn't going to work. It's going to produce some very interesting situations in the 21st century. If it does not produce the oil wars of the 21st century, then it will be because someone or some situation has intervened to prevent the next oil wars of the 21st century. So these are also really large-scale issues. If the rest of the world, namely not Japan, Australia, North America, Europe, the global north in other words, if the rest of the world really caught up with the United States then there would be 6.5 billion cars in the world, which, if you put them next to each other, will produce for you a nice 30 million mile tailback. Well, I, I leave it with you. What can we say about catching up, or developing like, or... Any phrases like that that might be applied to India and China. And then what do we say about our own car use in North America? In a curious paradox, the automobile appears in guises that make it appear very human and at the same time in guises that threaten humanity and our capacity to sustain life on Earth. Automobiles are seen not only as symbols of freedom, but also of family life the steel cage of the Volvo, supposed to protect the whole family. Social standing, the importance of which particular make and model is parked on the driveway. End of military masculinity. Think of women posed on cars at auto shows. Or the fact that Hummers, armored vehicles, are the fantasy machine of choice for some. Cars are an integral part of the cultural environment in which we see ourselves as human, says Dan Miller, Miller, a very interesting anthropologist on this topic. As an object, the car symbolizes things that are personally and socially valued. And at the same time, it need hardly be said, and I've said it already, that cars are at the center of some of the biggest controversies in the 20th century, and now the 21st. Global warming, most clearly, climate change. Carbon dioxide, other pollution, uh, collects in the atmosphere, traps the sun's heat, leading to a rise in temperatures on Earth. Coal burning and power plants are the biggest single pro- uh, producer in North America. 2.5 billion tons per year in this country, the United States. But cars are the second. After that, 1.5 billion tons per year. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but uh, there is a fine documentary. Uh, well, depends on your perspective, of course. You um, could be uh, paid by Standard Oil or someone and not like it very much, but it's called uh, The End... Oh, what is it called? The end of suburbia, the depletion of oil and the collapse of the American dream. Really very thought provoking uh, piece of documentary work, and uh, I commend it to you. You won't agree with it all. I didn't. But as a challenge and uh, as a, a thoughtful piece, it's uh it's very useful. Um, and the other I already mentioned, oil dependence and global security. Um, 9-11 was uh, a reminder, among other things, of what the Western world has done for decades to the uh, countries in the Middle East and in the Middle East. The security of that region is essential for uh, North American well-being, hence the political and military entanglements that have become more costly and more complicated over the years. I don't claim to have any kinds of Answers, but we have to acknowledge the involvement of, we have to acknowledge our own involvement in this world of oil dependency. Saudi Arabia will continue to uh, be the chief supplier of oil. Don't imagine that uh, wrecking the national park in Alaska will actually produce oil on a scale that could do anything to stop the depletion that is already going on. Saudi Arabia will continue to be the chief supplier of oil, but neither a simple continuation of current policies nor an attempt to pull out of that region will work. As Christians think about that, it seems to me that we could at the very least question our own dependence upon oil. Our contribution could be one in the Christian community that raises questions about how far uh, cars have to be uh, individually owned or owned by every household, particularly in churches where, uh, at best, there is a mixed social population and where car sharing uh, and carpooling and so on could occur. There are plenty of ways that one can address those sorts of things. You may think of a car, just to move on, you may think of a car as a kind of metal box on wheels, suitable for getting from A to B. But actually, today's cars are very highly sophisticated technological systems um, with not just heating and cooling devices, but also music, video systems, navigation aids, computer controlled environments, uh, gizmos to facilitate automated tolling the transponders, for example, or the consumption of food and beverages, linked with the now ubiquitous drive through coffee house or restaurant. Business people plug their laptops into their cars, enabling work to continue when you're stuck in one of those traffic jams. And drivers and passengers make calls using cell phones. Some groups, such as police, have complete offices in their cars. Others, such as parents with young children in Bangkok, are cooking facilities for uh, in their minivans in order to cope with the endlessly long daily school run. I won't even tell you how long they spend in their cars, but they now need cooking facilities because the kids are in the car so long, trying to get to those elite schools on the other side of the city. The biblical story revolves around what? The right to mobility? Hmm. I don't know. It doesn't seem to me that their right to mobility is easily detectable in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures or the New Testament. Maybe a letter to um, Mr. Takao is called for. Um, It does revolve around mobility, however. There's lots of mobility. Abraham had to pull up from his roots and go off elsewhere. Jesus didn't have anywhere to lay his head. There's a lot of mobility there. But there's also a lot of rootedness. And it seems to me that both mobility and rootedness are there in the biblical story, and we need to see them in tension with each other. Hebrew people were encouraged to settle in the land after their liberation from Egypt. Also warned that if they didn't follow God's ways, they'd be in danger of being uprooted. And of course, that happened more than once, producing those communities in exile. Even the communities in exile were sometimes, like in Jeremiah 29, encouraged to settle down, despite being in exile. Jesus seemed to be wandering from place to place, and yet he encouraged home life, like in Bethany, for example. Told people to go back to their communities, don't follow me, go back to your community, live it out there, tell people back home. Paul, another well hopelessly uh, parapetic, uh sorry peripatetic kind of uh, character, yet he encouraged people in their local communities to do their thing as the community of god's people. key questions about sociality, community issues of mobility today are at the heart of many questions about sustainable local communities. Questions about crime, for example. There's something uh, that will always make it into the newspapers and uh, television screens. Crime. Well, of course, more mobile communities have higher rates of crime. It doesn't take rocket science or even sociology to tell you that. Bedroom suburbs are ideal locations for theft. What about how we use cars in our downtown areas, in our cities? Uh, If I was talking about Kingston, Ontario, we have a real issue, the water, uh, the waterfront uh, of Kingston is where the mighty St. Lawrence drains out of Lake Ontario and heads for the ocean another 1700 kilometers from uh, where we are. And so we we have water on kind of three sides of the city. So the city center pushes up against the waterfront, raises huge questions for traffic and transportation and where people live. Um, How do we resolve those in the city? Do we just go along with the developers who currently want to build a huge hockey arena right on the waterfront that will draw even more vehicles right into that already overcrowded, crumbling uh, 19th century city to which paradoxically Americans like to cross the border to see this cute old Canadian city it won't be there if our own developers have their way and create something that will be destroyed by the automobiles that will come for the etc how do we involve ourselves in these kinds of things you know um, there aren't many organizations that you can join to express your ethical commitments or your Christian commitments in relation to automobiles. But there are others that you can join in with. We're part of our um, Residence Association, for example. And actually, because we live downtown, it's one of the most active residence um, uh, groups in the city. And there you do get a chance to talk about how the streets are being used, how wide they are, whether there's traffic coming in place, what the speed limits are, what uh, what happens with garbage and uh, recycling collection. All those kinds of things can be discussed that relate directly to our automobile use in that context. So it's not as if we have no voice. It's as if we can't say something in this area. Okay. I promise I said something about um, cell phones, so we could make the switch. Any comments or questions? Um, as bicycle riders, you're no doubt, you know, applauding what I'm saying and as car owners you're grinding your teeth and thinking, What is this guy talking about? Thinks he can produce Christian grounds for criticising my vehicle. So if you want to ventilate or just say something, I'm quite happy to take questions on motor cars for a couple of seconds and then we'll just say a little bit about um, a little bit about cell phones. Yeah. Um, I um, my aunt and my for years and, um, was old enough to remember uh, the use of yeah. great great point. So the point is being made about um, uh, not glorifying uh, earlier eras of transportation in this case yeah and if i was to tell you uh the problems that used to exist in the late 19th century in new york city with that which the horses left behind it was a huge problem and it was a public health problem because there was the liquid waste as well as the solid waste and yeah there you 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 can There are huge issues with other forms of transportation. So let's not have rose-colored spectacles about, you know, the awful age of the automobile and the era of oil and uh, how marvelous everything was beforehand. New Yorkers hated it. And, uh, sure, welcome the automobile. Sorry, I've lost the order. You had a question. Okay. Then we'd have to distinguish between different sorts of crime. Uh, property crimes, burglary, that sort of thing is more common in the suburbs. The kinds of crime that occur in downtown areas and of course make the newspapers and uh, TV screens are ones that more usually have to do with crimes against the person. So. Sure. Quite uh, Listen, I'm happy to retract anything if it's um, indicated that uh, that uh, it's it's inappropriate. It's just that there is plenty of evidence that in some large suburban areas the crime rates are higher than in downtown areas. But I mean Kingston and Queens is a very specific case like uh, Cornell in fact. Queens and Cornell are almost exactly the same size, and the cities surrounding them are the same size. So there are unique things about Kingston as well, just as there are here. And I couldn't use that phrase about Kingston any more than it seems you can here. Yeah? Robert, to think on average that it is of So maybe I want to ask you to sort of... Why don't you tell me what the question is? Um, okay, you know. so there's a practical question. What do we do with our cars to live more Christianly? Um, of course, we could start by taking the S off the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, that's, a, that's a really good question. But you know what? I, I really think that, as I said earlier, I want to help you read some of this stuff and then let you go talk about it over your meal tables and, and go discuss it elsewhere, talk about it over lunch. Um, I, and I, the last thing I want to do is prescribe certain kinds of behaviors. Last thing I want to do is assume that somehow what I do is, uh, uh, an, an example worth following on hopes that, you know, some things that we do are, do set examples that are worth following. But I don't know, I'm, what is church? Church is SA, Sinners Anonymous. We're all in the same situation together. Hi, I'm David. I'm a sinner. That's where we start in church and in any Christian context. And really, that's part of my answer. I'm as wrapped up in this world as you people are. I make no pretense of being any different and certainly no better than you. So I think the discussions that we have together are the really worthwhile ones. If I can help you read things a bit, then you can go do the work. But... um, that doesn 't answer the question that 's because you 're going to answer the question for yourself okay let 's say a little bit about cell phones, and then uh, I think we 're supposed to do something else and as i say the the third and, and last session after lunch we'll look at microwaves so that's that 's where we 're going. Um, In the 1990s, there was massive enthusiasm in the global north for what was called the internet. And huge dreams were uh, expressed about the internet, huge hopes, uh, massive visions about wired worlds and all sorts of things were vested in... Uh, the Internet, and especially the World Wide Web. At the same time, something else was occurring, which I suspect has more far-reaching and deeper consequences than anything that the World Wide Web or the Internet uh, could have produced or will produce, and that is the advent of the cell phone. By 2002, more than a billion cell phone subscriptions were in place globally. And in Iceland, Finland, Italy, and the UK, more than three-quarters of the population had a cell phone. That's by 2002. Koreans and Japanese used them very heavily as well. (coughs) So why would this device catch on so fast? What is so special about something that connects you with others wherever you are? And by the way, I'm saying nothing negative about connection, except that connectivity falls far, far short of relationality. Just a hint as to where we might go in thinking about any device that connects. Connection is not relation, and though connection may aid relation in some contexts, there is no necessary connection between, or link, between connection and relation. Just, just a hint. John Agar points out that the rise of the uh, cell phone is a bit like that of the pocket watch. Once, the only clocks were on church towers, uh, on government buildings, or, of course, workplaces. The pocket and eventually wrist watch freed people from having to find a public clock or from waiting to get home where, if you were better off, a clock might be ticking in the hallway. However... If you had a watch, or a pocket watch, or a wrist watch, it also linked you into a vast system of simultaneity. The same time everywhere. This became international, with the invention of time zones in the 1880s. Don't forget how recent time zones are. If it was 7 a.m. in New York City... It was noon in London, England, and 8 p.m. in Shanghai. The clock was also the symbol of the routines of business in industrial societies, organized in bureaucratic hierarchies and with fixed timetables. Okay, what's the connection? Similarly, telephones were once the preserve of the rich and then only available in fixed locations, telephone booths, homes, businesses, of course. The mobile phone, through its manufacture, depends on raw materials and techniques from many different countries, and has been developed in different ways, in different cultural settings. Actually, the author of one of these books, I think it was John Agar, decided that he would find out about his uh, cell phone by taking a hammer to it. And uh, he managed to break it over. You know, you can never use a screwdriver to undo them, so you have to take a hammer if you want to get inside. So uh, he opened it up to discover where all the different parts come from and realized that not only was it global in its reach, it was global in its origins, uh, because all the parts came from different places. Anyway, that was just an aside. Um, And the mobile phone fits with horizontal social networking that's quite different in style from the rigidity of the world where the clock and the watch reigned supreme, or at least that's the rather optimistic way in which Agar construes it. Centralized authority can, of course, in some ways be uh, circumvented by using the cell phone, and they will look at the example of the Filipino president, uh, Joseph Estrada, Uh, being brought down in 2001 by a demonstration that was entirely orchestrated, so we're told, by the use of uh, uh, text message chain letters. And certainly people can make their own arrangements independently of others using these devices. Now, John Agar, who's written one of the most interesting books about the mobile phone, believes that in a fragmented, flexible, atomized world, the cell phone provides a network. The basis, he suggests, for a new kind of social cohesion. Well, is he right? Let's uh, skip over telephones, the telephone itself is a really interesting case in point for thinking Christianly about technical devices. The number of people who imagine that the telephone was a device of the devil, just as the radio was seen as a device of the devil, TVs were seen as a device of the devil, etc., etc., is really quite high. You look at, uh, well, including American preachers in the earlier part of the 20th century, and you'll find plenty of interesting critiques about the devil in the phone. However, we'll uh, give that a miss. You started with analog air interface kinds of technologies that allowed voice only in cell phones. You then moved to digital protocols and now uh, third generation um, new wireless standards for more capacity, high speed data, uh, plus usability in different countries. Things have moved very fast with uh, cell phones. What is their social significance? What is their cultural, their spiritual significance? Well, they sure have such significances, just as they have political and economic ones as well. Once a telephone would ring only in a fixed place. Now the number calls up a specific person. There is your, different, your basic difference. Place to person. This means, for example, that they're often used for finding people. How often have you overheard the half conversation? You can only hear half the conversation in most cases. I'm in the train. Or, where are you? That you hear on someone else's uh, cell phone. The idea of a proxy meeting, let's text each other when we're getting close and then decide what we're going to do, could only appear with the mobile, the cell phone. At the same time, these apparent new freedoms have to be seen alongside the desire of parents to check where their children are. So, you give them a phone to enable asking, or with GPS capability, so that you don't have to ask at all, and you've probably read them yourself, but there are a number of uh, cases where you can buy exactly these kinds of uh, off-the-shelf systems whereby you hand the keys to your daughter who's going on a road trip, and you wish her well, and you go to the screen and watch her progress as she moves down the interstate on your screen. Easily done. Not a problem. When our kids used to borrow the car, we used to say, okay, there are the keys, we trust you, and we had no idea what happened then. You now can have an idea of exactly where they are, what speed they're going on the interstate, etc. And of course, employers, even more than parents, use those systems extensively. The whole concept of public and private is also challenged by cell phone use. Not to mention religious and secular, if you like. Did you see the piece in yesterday's New York Times about uh, cellulare in uh, St. Peter's Square in Rome? Really neat little piece about uh, cell phones. Um, whereby, despite the prohibition on taking photographs at the beer of the uh, Pope, thousands, tens of thousands, they reckon millions of images of the Pope were captured on uh, camera phones. And the, and the article talks about digital relics and so on. It's a neat little bit of satire, but it also looks at something very seriously. These are the digital relics of John Paul. And... Um, Cellulare is the means of doing it. Um, the other interesting thing about cell phones is you do have a different word for every country. I'm temporarily forgetting the Japanese <laughs> word, which, uh, uh, teikai. Um, so, no, not teikai. Hmm. Katai, that's what it is. But you have the mobile phone if you're talking British English. Um, sorry? Cetai, what did I say? Cetai, um, anyways, it, yeah, sorry. Um, and cellulare in Italy. There's just a, a marvelous um, language around cell phone use and cultural differences in the way that these uh, items are used, too. We overhear those very intimate conversations in ways that we never did when people were in fixed places, usually in a booth or in a room, and if they wanted to be intimate on the telephone, somewhere intimate. But now, um, in the uh, bus and uh, on the train and uh, on the street, you hear all kinds of intimacies that you really don't want to hear. Uh, or you're in church and the phone rings in someone's pocket or purse. Um, you couldn't get a seat in the quiet car on the train. You actually have to designate a car in the train as a quiet car, namely one where people aren't to use their cell phones. And curiously, even cell phone users can be dubious about their public use. Would you believe that 45% of those polled in the United Kingdom, users of cell phones, said that they supported a ban in public places? great consistency there. Third generation has increased the controversy, for example, with camera phones. In Korea now, manufacturers are required to provide a loud shutter noise. It has to be in the machine so that no one will be able to take photos, men of unsuspecting women, usually, without without detection. As other services become available, the data about where the user is at a given moment, location in real time, become more valuable to marketers and law enforcers, as well as to people like parents and employers. Cell phones may be used to track and trace others, to log their comings and goings, to create a world where it's hard to find, a place of true seclusion, privacy, or anonymity. The most significant aspect of cell phones from the point of view of time and speed and acceleration, is that they make possible constant availability. While there are fewer places you can go and not be found on your cell phone, there are also fewer and fewer times when you are free of the phone. If there was already something insistent about landline telephones, cell phones seem only to have magnified this. Uh, And again, You know, practical examples. I don't know what you do with your telephones in the home. Years ago, we talked in our home about who would use the telephone when. Obviously, you need, if you've just got one line, you have to have a way of dividing. We have four children, and uh, there was a time when the telephone was in heavy demand. Um, But we also determined together as a family when we wouldn't answer the phone, however insistent the ring happened to be. And um, I'm happy to say that our kids now in other cities in uh, Canada observe very similar rules. No telephone answering during mealtimes, for example. There are ways that we can uh, insert priorities that have to do with relations into our telephone and cell phone use. And there are many telephone services that refer both to landline and to um, uh, cell phones that uh, we could also discuss, everything from caller ID to call waiting uh, and so on and so forth, that can, well, that speak volumes about the priorities that you have. You're standing in the uh, store, just to give the most obvious example. You're standing behind the counter and you're talking with the clerk. And the telephone rings. And the clerk chooses to go talk to the person on the telephone. And you think, hmm, I thought I was in the middle of a conversation. How often do we break off our moments of relationality with others. For some other, why is it a priority to answer the telephone when you're in a store? And the same can be said you know, if you have call waiting or um, if you're able to put people on hold to put people on another line in domestic situations. In domestic situations, you're much more likely to be receiving calls not just from business associates but from family members or from friends. Do you distinguish between one friend and another by saying, oh, I'll just put you on hold? Or do you use some other kind of system, like an answering service that will record the message and then you can go and deal with it in a focused and uh, attentive way? What are the ways that we actually deal with these situations that speak so much to our relationality and raise questions about our relationality? that we use from day to day. As you can tell, there's a lot of other things that uh, we could say about these machines. I see we're out of time again, and um, I think we're going to have some sort of a, a, a panel session now. But maybe I'll make a couple of suggestions about where we go with the material. I've tried to read a little bit of motor car, read a little bit of cell phone for you. I also started with, a, with, with an approach to technologies in general right at the beginning of the day. I'm encouraging you to sort of put those together as you talk with each other and as you go to your various homes at the end of the day, try to take these things and and put them together for yourself.